This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then? Yes, the cautionary and provocative words, sir, of George Orwell from his book, 1984. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this week's show looks at the enchanting world of fairy tale, with haunting, bold and powerful tales that illustrate valuable moral and political lessons for both children and adults. Emma Byrne, designer with the O'Brien Press, discusses three classic fairy tales by the great Oscar Wilde. And for those who think the likes of the Happy Prince are strictly for babies with hot bottles at bedtime, well, think again. Wilde's timeless narratives present courageous insights into today's and yesterday's fractured social landscape. And for those who love big ideas, political commentary and storytelling, well, you'll be well and truly luxurated this morning. The good news is we're going to put on our boots and pay a visit to dirty, nasty, sleazy Manor Farm. Yes, George Orwell territory and discuss one of the most controversial and provocative fables of all time. Joining us later is Professor Robert Colley, whose latest book, George Orwell, English Rebel, is a must read for Orwell fanatics. What I liked about this new biography is that it remarkably balances Orwell's creative output with his intense and hugely conflicted personality. He certainly wasn't that stable, shining light of moral consistency that some of his biographers have portrayed him as. He was very conflicted in himself and actually outside himself. He was embarrassed about his class. He was embarrassed about his schooling. He was embarrassed at first about being English. And of course, he was actually an extraordinary man who actually wanted to be ordinary. And that was probably the most conflicted part of him. But first, Oscar Wilde is famous for his hilariously satirical and razor-sharp biting social commentaries. But while most people are familiar with his memorable plays and prose, some may have forgotten his valuable contribution to children's fiction. While the O'Brien Press has beautifully reproduced Oscar Wilde's stories for children using the original illustrations of one of the 20th century's foremost illustrators, Charles Robinson. Now, what makes this book so special are Charles Robinson's vibrant and evocative watercolours. And mixed with his line drawings and wild seamless prose, this reprint will be a magical and timeless treasure for children and adults alike. Well, last week, myself and Emma Byrne, the designer of Oscar Wilde's Stories for Children, sat down and leafed through this gloriously illustrated book. And I have to say, it made for one magnificent morning. We started out by chatting about where art and books meet. Arts and books, where do they meet? In fact, books are art for a large part of the time. And I think we're in an interesting time now in the history of books and what's happening out there in the industry. We have fascinating new technology. We've got e-books and apps and the whole range that that's going to implode and is imploding on the scene. But at the same time, we can look at books as an object, that books in themselves become an art object. There's something to cherish. They're the complete opposite to an electronic device. You can touch them. You can feel the texture of them. You can smell the ink as you turn the pages. And that's what we were trying to do with this Oscar Wilde book, was to take something that was published way back in 1888. The stories themselves are 
timeless and they have an ethereal quality. And we looked at the original illustrations that Charles Robinson did and we looked at the original book and as both were out of copyright, we wondered, could we look at this and reinterpret it for a modern audience, tying into those ideas, a book as an art object. And hopefully that's what we've done and what we've produced here today. And of course, reading is a divine experience for most people. And Charles Robinson certainly lives up to the divine in his magnificent illustrations. For those who aren't familiar with Charles Robinson, can you tell me a bit about him? He was quite an extraordinary fellow. He certainly was. I came across his work as a child and I didn't even know who he was at the time, but I was given Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses and I remember reading it, the little verses and them meaning something, but more importantly, I was really struck by the drawings. I thought they had a warmth and they had an ethereal quality that I couldn't explain as a child. I didn't understand it, but I knew it had a depth to it. And was it kind of a magic or something? Exactly. That's exactly the right word. It had a magic, not maybe that I understood, but you had often you had um, little creatures. They had wings. You might have had elves, but then you, in the midst of it, you would have a child walking through a garden and all the strange and wonderful things. It opened up a new world to me as a child and it certainly would have influenced my future career. And Charles Robinson Emma was out of print when you decided to use his illustrations for this new reprint of Oscar Wilde's short stories for children. That's correct. He was out of print and he was out of copyright. There may have been one or two print versions of his work and certainly his work is available in, in older editions of books. But we wondered, because of the quality of the drawings, was it worth reintroducing them to a contemporary audience? And if, in fact, could you embellish them with, by adding splashes of colour here and there? This is indeed a tightrope act because you don't want to take anything away from the drawings as they stand and their quality but at the same time you just want to try and enhance them and he did do some colour plates which we've used in the books and to try with the new watercolours that we worked over his line work was to try and I suppose to a degree mimic what happened in the colour plates but not overpower the text or indeed the original drawings either. And when we look at, you know, the current state of play with what readers expect from their books, you know, it's a completely different playing field than, let's say, the life and world of books of 100 years ago. Like you've brought into me today, The Happy Prince. So how old is this book that we have here in my hand? Uh, the book that you have in your hand is um, the third or fourth edition and it's a um, octavo size in size, which is near, very near our what would be called our just our normal paperbacks here today, except that it has a hardback cover. It's from 1913, actually, this one. And it's a handbag size, extraordinary atmospheric, the old pages, the, the yellowness of them, the dark tones. And it's, it's still very robust and there's great little notes in it and everything like that. But this book, however charming, would not transfer to... To a modern audience and if a mother or a father was reading or an aunt or uncle was reading a fairy tale at night to their nieces or nephews this certainly wouldn't cut the mustard. No I don't think it would at all and even though people may be familiar and parents would probably be familiar with Oscar Wilde's stories for children I think if they were buying a book for their children today they would want something that has colour and that has as I say all those things has a textured feel to the page but is, is bright and is warm and the original early edition that we have here it is just you know they're just black and white drawings essentially so the latest edition from the O'Brien Press here the Oscar Wilde stories for children it covers three of the original five short stories from Oscar Wilde and it's absolutely glorious it is rich with colour there is a hugely magical quality to it so vibrant it's so textured but what is enormously interesting is that how the pictures really convey the transformation 
transformative qualities to the story. Can you talk to me a little bit about it? Well, I think when you read the stories, and I'll read one of the stories in a moment. So, I mean, everybody knows Oscar Wilde as a very famous writer, a very famous wit. And what I think was interesting in reading, I'd read these stories as children. They have a quality that you don't, you know, get in much writing today. They have a depth. They're often quite serious. They're sometimes sad and moralistic, spiritual at times. There's a love of art in Oscar Wilde stories for children. And they're, I think, about the importance of art in society and the necessity for it without hammering it home like some doctrine or philosophy. And to do that for children as readers, what a wonderful thing to do. And the remarkable thing is that, you know, when I was going through this book at home, I was looking at it and going, oh, would my nieces absolutely love this? But then I said, God, these pictures are just amazing. There's so much pleasure in them that I'm sure parents reading to their children at night are, they're going to get great nourishment from it because it's so visually engrossing. But what really jumps out the power of watercolour and how cleverly and how masterfully Charles Robinson has presented these stories as visual pictures. Exactly. I mean, the art of watercolour is all about a build-up of colour with washes and the more washes that you put on the more greater depth that the image has and I think that matches with metaphor what's happening in the stories is that they have layers of meaning if you wish to look for them but they also work on, on the surface and for instance you know he can t- to get a green he won't just paint on s- straight green he'll paint yellow first and paint blue over it so he's using his great knowledge of watercolour to great advantage to bring a richness and a depth and a huge sense of mood a huge sense of mood, which is, you know, as I say, captures, I, I use this word a lot, but that ethereal notions that are within the text. And the stories themselves are vastly different to uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was one of the first books, believe it or not, I ever bought. Or if you look at The Importance of Being Earnest, there is a kind of a, a kind of a message, a sadness, an emotional quality to them that we don't always think that Oscar Wilde had because he was so quick-witted, so sarcastic, so brutal, so cutting on the social landscape that it's quite a different man we get and quite a different storyteller in this collection. But one of the things maybe that's not known so much about Oscar Wilde as well is that he wrote a lot about art criticism and, you know, he was a great aesthete. And I think you do get that in Dorian Gray. It is about degeneracy and the nature of, of the aesthete and nature versus art and what I think is amazing is that he he hints at these messages these very quite deep philosophical messages in a children's book but again without uh, sort of hammering home the message Can we talk about some of the stories here so could we maybe start with The Happy Prince loved and adored by so many people Well The Happy Prince is the story of a beautiful statue which is made of this resplendent gold and jewels and it stands way high up above the town and all the people below they look up with it and they admire it, even though they suffer in their own lives and they may be poverty and they get tired and they get angry. But they look up and they really admire the happy prince. But then anyway, one night he's standing, this prince is there and a swallow comes along and it's getting towards winter. And he's been left behind because all his fellow birds have gone off to Egypt for the winter. And he decides he needs somewhere to stay for the night. So he perches himself up on top of the prince, you know, snuggles in, is about to bed down. And he looks in and he notices that the 
happy prince, his eyes are full of tears. And then he gets chatting to the prince. But the prince, it turns out, is very unhappy. And he recalls a time when he was living, but he was happy. But now that he's a statue, and even though he has all this resplendent beauty and gold and jewels, he's in leaden heart. He's really sad at all the sorrow and all the pain and all the poverty he sees down below him. So they get chatting and the prince then convinces the swallow that maybe he can help him out. So what he gets him to do is to bring his jewels and then eventually bring his golds, which he picks off them to bring it down to all the various people in the town you know because that will make them happy and the swallow says okay I can do that and he you know even though it's cold and he knows he should you know he should be getting ready to go back to Egypt he goes ahead and he does what the prince asks him to do anyway this goes on and eventually you have the swallow you know eventually he comes back to the prince after finally giving the last piece of gold and he's cold and he's tired and he dies in the service to the prince and this prince is broken hearted at this that the little swallow has given up his life trying to help the people and anyway the prince is you know and his leaden heart breaks and then down in the town the people they look up at the prince and they realise he has no jewels anymore he's got no gold he's got no luster you know he looks shabby oh we'll have to get that derelict statue down he's going to fall it'll look awful so then what they do is they do they they pull him down and they melt him down and and it's all very sad but then at the end an angel comes from God and he is sent as a messenger to ask to bring two of the most precious things in the city back to God so he brings the dead swallow and he brings the heart of the prince and they will be in paradise forevermore. There is a moralistic attitude there about preserving you know beauty and you know and heritage and art that these are really important for how we live our lives how society looks at things. And for I suppose our sense of identity and our sense of place but it's it's really heartwarming stuff in one way and very uplifting but there is a huge sadness to it as well and I think you're just going to read a little passage from the happy prince there. Exactly you get a quality of the writing and a tone of where Oscar Wilde is going here. Dear little swallow, said the prince, you tell me of marvellous things, but more marvellous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off, till the happy prince looked quite dull and grey. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from the eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs and the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the 
the statue as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below, in company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor, and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword, his eyes are gone, and he is golden no longer. In fact, he is little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here's actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarrelled. When I last heard of them, they were quarrelling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it in a dust heap where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels, and the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing forevermore, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me. Oh, that is lovely <laughs> stuff there, and I'm just looking at the big smile on your face. <laughs> what is so refreshing from an adult's perspective, and of course lots of adults will be reading this to their children or their nieces I or their so. friends' children, is that the illustrations are so exquisite, but they're so different to what we get today with, you know, Teletubbies, Dora the Explorer. This takes you to another world. It's old school and it's transformative. Absolutely. It has a softness. It has a tranquility. It isn't roaring for your attention and it has a great unity therefore with the text. I think Irish illustration at the moment is very healthy and there's a lot of good and interesting people coming up and with O'Brien Press we'll be hopefully publishing them soon. But I think what's interesting with this older illustration and even though it's over 100 years ago it has a depth and a quality that outlasts the ages. And why do you think it is that we usually only get kind of interesting illustrations in poetry books or spirituality book rather than you know short stories or maybe women's fiction? Often it's a case of market. There's a sort of a decided what works in the market where with uh, women's literature there's a certain cover kind of approach and you, you kind of fit with that and you work with that and it's just sometimes you have the opportunity to one always tries to do different things and it's easier when the author is for, for instance very well known so they're going to be bought anyway and you're taking I guess less of a risk. You're a designer with a very established publishing company here in Ireland so I imagine that you've to come face to face with authors and you have a kind of a creative idea about the message or the story or some of the characters in their books and then you hit them with that and you know they've imagined something entirely different. How do you handle that and what happens? Many of the authors are are very well informed, I have to say, and they realise that their book has to sell. When we're working on book covers, you know, we work on a team in-house, they go to meetings, they're discussed. We're very lucky, we have uh, dedicated booksellers that help us and a very good sales team in-house and we say, you know, is this going to work for the market, etc. And then we show them to the author and, you know, sometimes they're they're not terribly happy, absolutely, but we, they really 
realise that their book has to sell. But most of the time they understand that and they understand the need, the, the place that marketing has in the look of their book. So finally, Emma, if you were to suggest for those who are interested in buying other very well illustrated stories for children, parents out there who are interested in maybe, you know, exploring different types of books, maybe some of them that wouldn't be on the bestsellers list. Is there any kind of top three books that you'd recommend? It's difficult to say, but I would direct people towards the O'Brien website. The O'Brien Press has been publishing children's books, indigenous children's books with Irish authors and Irish illustrators. This will be our, the 40th year that they're doing it. And of course, the unbelievably talented Jerry Hunt, one of Ireland's greatest uh, graphic novel writers, is on your books. Exactly. O'Brien Press have been publishing graphic novels now for a number of years and uh, that was a real breakthrough really. Cloveo had done a couple in Irish but we started to do more of them and particularly I think the nuance is taking historical periods or events and explaining them through the graphic novel sequential narrative route which is an interesting way to do it because children and young adults often don't want to tackle heavy historical tomes which are often controversial but if you use the medium of the comic book or the graphic novel, it gives a slightly different interpretation and it makes them maybe less controversial and it's easier to read and it's with the image and the text, you know, so that's quite a, that's a breakthrough area and so that's a different area. But we also publish children's stories, graphic novels. Alan Nolan has done done a detective series called The Big Break Detectives for, for younger kids. So for all ranges, we've done Coo Cullen. There's a graphic novel by Will Sliney. Brian Baru, uh, his story is explained in graphic novel by Damien Goodfellow, done one about Jim Larkin, Big Jim. Which is a tremendous book. I have it at home. It's really outstanding. The authors have really done an amazing job, Rory and Jim. And if I was to move outside, I would recommend books of Chris Judge. I think it's The Lonely Beast and also uh, Kevin Waldron. They're great Irish talent there and it's long may it continue. And that was Emma Byrne, designer with the O'Brien Press, talking to me about the magic and mystery so beautifully conveyed in Oscar Wilde's Stories for Children. Coming up next, we delve into the life and curious mind of one of Britain's greatest political writers, George Orwell. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you want to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. I'd love to hear from you. Now on to one of the most fascinating and rocking imaginations in English writing. George Orwell was one of the greatest public intellectuals and political satirists of the 20th century. His books and ideas have captured generations of children, students and adults with their incredible moral lessons on how power can corrupt and ultimately lead to greed, violence and exploitation. Now, while Orwell was famous for his classics such as 1984 and Animal Farm, he was also a prodigious writer of essays. And while lesser known, some of these fearless polemics are nearly better than his famous books. Robert Colley is Professor of Cultural History at the University of Leicester. He is author of the acclaimed Identity of England and is widely regarded as one of the foremost scholars of 20th century British culture. His latest book, George Orwell, English Rebel, has just been published by Oxford University Press and is a fascinating and wonderfully accessible read for those who like intellectual biography and a bit of cultural history. Well, this one is stunning. 
I promise you, you won't be disappointed. It's warm, funny, erudite and original and thankfully doesn't go down all the usual cliched routes. Well, last weekend, I caught up with Robert and despite a grating sore throat, which I'm sure will possibly drive some listeners nuts, I found myself wanting to talk and talk for hours. How can you not when it comes to a joint like George Orwell? He's such a character. Now, Robert's book takes readers on a journey through the life, the writings and thought of George Orwell. And while it offers fresh insights on Orwell's sturdy political imagination, what really appealed to me was the illuminations on Orwell's intense personal relationships with his friends and many sexual partners. We talked about this and, of course, Orwell's hugely conflicted personality. He certainly wasn't that stable, shining light of moral consistency that some of his biographers have portrayed him as. He was very conflicted in himself and actually outside himself. He was embarrassed about his class. He was embarrassed about his schooling. He was embarrassed at first about being English. And of course, he was actually, Sue, an extraordinary man who actually wanted to be ordinary. And that was probably the most conflicted part of him. And he certainly didn't have an ordinary mind in terms of his writing, his polemical style and his political opinions. Yeah, that's right. He's special because he's conflicted. And I think that conflictedness can take him into some dark places, as it does in 1984. And it can take him, of course, into combat and aggression. Added to that, we must never forget with George Orwell or Eric Blair that he was... In many ways, a privileged young man went to Eton College, won a scholarship there, had the best education you could possibly get in formal sense, and yet was a maverick, rubbed against the grain. So he has the best of both worlds in a way for a writer. He has this superb education, but he's also rather against things and wants to fight. Would it be fair to say that George Orwell is just as much a political thinker as a literary god? Yeah, he's more a political thinker, actually, Sue, than a literary figure. Although it's the literature people who've had most to say about him. He's driven by politics, really. And in fact, in terms of his writing, you you talk about his writing and his mind. I think he's more one of you guys than one of us guys. I mean, I'm an English prof. You're a journalist. He's a journalist, really, in his heart. And he comes across things, he chances on things, he tries to get them right, he tries to see the moral justice or injustice of a situation and report back to tell us what it's really like to be there. That's a political style, actually. And can you tell me a bit about his experiences during the Spanish Civil War? Well, he goes to Spain. We're not sure whether he thinks he can contribute to the fighting or whether he really goes to write some articles. But the truth is, he joins the PUM, who are a militia group of a neo-Trotskyite Marxist party. He does an amazing thing. He reports to the Lenin barracks in Barcelona and signs on as Eric Blair Grosser, which always makes me laugh that a Grosser should join a Leninist division. He then goes to fight with a centura of the PUM militia, that's 100 men and assorted animals, on the Aragon front facing the fascist lines. He's in action twice, never satisfactorily. He spends most of his time with his comrades trying to keep warm. But on the second tour of duty, he's stretching one morning in his trench and being a very tall guy, a fascist sniper sees him and puts one straight through his throat. 
He's incredibly lucky with this. I mean, it would kill most people by it, the laws of ballistics, indeed the laws of necks. But he has to be taken down the line to an ambulance station, and after that, really, he's on his way home. However, it's not the neck that really takes him home. It's going back to Barcelona from the front and finding that the Spanish secret police are on his tail and on his wife's tail as traitors. And he took this very badly, didn't he? Oh, he did. He hated this. These were the people he was fighting with, or at least for, that is the Republic. But the Republic are trying to arrest him. He can't tolerate this. And of course, it confirms in his mind all these suspicions he's had about the hard communist left, which he's really been nursing these suspicions for three or four years. Now, one of the aspects, Robert, of George Orwell's life that I was particularly interested in was his experiences in Burma. Mm -hmm. And I've spent some time with the Karen people, and I believe he was fluent in Karen. It's rather remarkable. Can you tell me about this? He's a great linguist, of course. I mean, he didn't go to Eton College because his parents were particularly rich. They weren't. He won a scholarship there. And you've got to, I mean, the curriculum in those public schools in those days was formidable. And he uh, he excelled at that. And he did Greek and, and Latin. And um, when he went to Burma, he learned the local native language, as you say. But he also learned Hindi and Spanish and Italian. Yeah, he was a natural linguist. Of course, his greatest gift was with the English language. He writes quite beautifully. And he's so wonderfully curious and provocative. And yeah. he's not scared to ruffle a few feathers. I know he got into a fight with H.G. Wells at one stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's combative. And my book actually tries to do justice to him. Actually, Sue tries to pay tribute to him by being equally combative back. So I've actually tried to give Orwell a bit of a pushing around in the way that he liked to give others a push around. He thought H.G. Wells was kind of comfortable and, you know, established and uh, not really on the ball anymore. And he basically told him so. And he also got into a, a right old brawl with someone he might have known better about. That was Sean O'Casey, who he basically accused of being a phony. And why was that? He reviewed the fourth volume of O'Casey's autobiography in 1945 and basically said, well, he is an Irish nationalist, committed Irish nationalist and something of a communist who actually lives in England. And Orwell basically says, what are you doing enjoying the fruits of living in England if you don't have a good word to say about this country? Of course, in 1945, we'd been at war and Orwell committed to the war. And of course, Ireland's neutrality also riled Orwell. He didn't think it was a just and proper position. So he picks a fight with O'Casey and of course, O'Casey picks a fight back. It's quite a good punch-up, actually. Do you think that Orwell eventually, through World War II, finally reconciled himself to the fact that he actually was an Englishman? Yeah, absolutely. This is the theme of my book, that there are many ways to understand George Orwell. Being a contradictory man, there are many ways into him. But the key for me is his gradual reconciliation with England in the last 10 years of his life compared to a life spent before that was pretty, pretty antithetical. I mean, up to 1936, 37, Orwell and O'Casey would have probably pretty much been on the same side. Now, he'd a very interesting love life and it makes for great reading. 
George was, first of all, had an undying passion and a love for a lady, an unrequited love, and then managed to marry twice. Can you tell me about his complex interpersonal relationships? I know he relied on a few very close friends throughout his whole life, between travelling to and from England, but he seems to have had very intense relationships with people. Yeah, probably more with men than women. I don't mean sexual. Well, he's an Englishman of a certain class. You might even say a certain caste. And the first fact about George Orwell is he's not really in a position to know women, women of his own type anyway, until he's, what, mid-20s. I mean, he goes to an all-boys prep school, an all-boys public school, and then an all-boys army, paramilitary police in Burma. Although I think he has sexual encounters along the way, I don't think he really has a relationship with women of his kind until he comes back to England at the end of the 1920s. Then he has quite a series of what appear to be brusque sexual affairs with women in England, London, and uh, where his parents live in Southwold. I think you might say he had a conventional view of sexual relations from a man's point of view. But of course, it's hard to say because we don't really know anything about people's sex lives. We talk about sex, but we've no idea about their sex life. We certainly have no idea of Orwell's because he was very, very private about it. But one would imagine from reading his books that he was somewhat isolated physically in some ways. No, I don't think that's right. I think his characters are, but one's got to be careful and not mix his characters up with him. For instance, in Keep the Aspidistra Flying, the character is Gordon Comstock, who was probably the first angry young man 20 years ahead of his time, 20 years before Osborne does it. Now, Comstock is a sad, lonely figure, actually, who can't really write. Now, Orwell might have thought of himself like that four years previous. But when he writes that book in 35, he's actually not sad, not lonely, and not a forlorn writer. Actually, a pretty successful one. But maybe he understood the temperament quite well, and that's why he wrote so brilliantly. Sure, I think he understood the temperament. This is a writer's job. I think he knew all about going back upstairs to cold, empty bedsits. Can you tell me about Eileen? She worked in the Ministry of Information during the war. Yeah, she's bright, she's high tempo, she's witty. And I think she brings a kind of charm and warmth to Orwell. You can spot it after they marry in 36. His writing becomes more positive, more upbeat, more optimistic, actually. She comes from an Irish family. She's made a name as O'Shaughnessy. Although I have to say this, she was born in my hometown, South Shields, on Tyneside. And her brother Lawrence, I think, was Irish-born, as her father was. But she's English, by birth anyway, and goes to Oxford, does a degree in literature, because they're quite a well-to-do family. She meets Orwell at a party in London in 1935, and she marries him in 1936. They're good comrades, Sue, although in certain ways they have what you might call an unconventional marriage. They're certainly best of friends, and politically I think they're as one. She joins the Ministry of Information because she's as one with her husband that this is a war that has to be fought and won. He married again after she died. She died very tragically when she was having surgery. Yeah, she died in 1945 trying to save money by going to a cheaper hospital than a, a one they could actually just about afford because Animal Farm was about to be a big success. So that's, that's terrible after only nine years of marriage. Orwell by then had a little child, a young, a little boy who was adopted and had to look after him. And also 
or will have TB. So there was a string of nannies. But in the end, Richard is brought up by his aunt. His second wife was called Sonia Brownell. She was about 15 years younger than him. Like him, she'd been born in India. Uh, like him, she was uh, south of England, middle class. Although, like him as well, middle class fallen on hard times. In the 30s, she was a, a famous model for painters. She was called the Euston Road Venus and was quite a girl in the 40s, had a ritzy kind of war. She was smart and literary and bright and worked for a number of journals. But I don't think she had much interest in Orwell until very late in the day, actually so late that he was dying. And they married in University College Hospital London four months before he died in October 49. So how do you explain that relationship then on both their sides? I just think they came to a deal that she was smart and would make a very good agent for him. He was suddenly famous. She hoped that his money and her care and good doctors and a Swiss environment could save his lung. He hoped that Sonia would be loving and caring. And a deal was struck. That's my interpretation. There have been others. And probably the most damning interpretation is that she was interested in his gathering fortune. Some of his biographers have taken that line. But I don't see why that should be the case. After he died, actually, she fought tooth and nail to defend his son's rights to the inheritance. Can we talk about one of my favourite books of all time, Animal Farm, Mm. and of Snowball and Napoleon, (laughs) and all the wonderful lines. I don't know how often I said, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others Mm. in all sorts of contexts. There's so much mileage in that book for conversation, for thought, and for critique. It's truly one of the greatest books of all time. Yeah, it certainly is a great book. It's a great allegory. And, you know, you and I can love it. And my nine-year-old children loved it when I read it to them, when they were nine, that is. So it's a great kind of allegory about, well, you could say human nature in one way, or the Russian Revolution in another way, because, as you know, we have an English, very English farm, actually, where there's a revolution of the animals, which goes terribly wrong. That's Orwell's warning, really, in 1945 about what happened in the Soviet Union and maybe actually what happens in all revolutions, that the cleverest animals, the most ruthless animals, seize the revolution and bend it to their will, not the people's. I think Orwell was talking about revolutions in general by 45. And he tremendous insight into characters and into people and what motivates people and how ultimately that we are all flawed. And all ideals are also flawed. Yeah, he's not exactly, I mean, that makes him sound a bit like a parish priest. He's not really a believer in original sin of that kind. He's actually very anti-Orthodox Christianity. But he is a cautious pessimist in that he doesn't really believe in big politics, capital P. Actually, he's probably in line with two great Irishmen. One is Jonathan Swift and his ideas of animal allegories. And the other is Edmund Burke, I think. In the end, Orwell believes in the little platoons, the small worlds, and the marginal improvements. The Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany frightened the life out of him about big plans and big politics, as indeed actually did the British Empire and all the hot air that was spouted in its favour. Orwell liked little communities and little politics. And in a way, that little farm with the pigs and the ducklings and the horses. And, you know, it really is a Burkean moment in English letters. And Robert, what do you think 
George Orwell would have thought about murky places like Guantanamo Bay or what's happening in Syria and the Arab Spring. Do you think he would have reported and what do you think he would have reported on? Very difficult to tell that, Sue. He was very much a man of his time. The book cover actually is a beautiful 1930s design, which I think captures that really well. So he's a man of his time. It's very hard to speculate what he'd think now. But what we can say is that the Spanish Civil War in 1936, 37, 38 was very like Syria. It was an unbelievably complicated, unfathomable war with many, many sides. And Orwell parachuted into that. Not literally. I mean, he walked into a Syrian situation to fight for a militia. Quite astonishing, really. As for Guantanamo Bay, he would have railed against that because, in the end, he believed in liberty and law. On the other hand, he would have been no friend of Islamo-fascism or any kind of totalitarian tyranny which he saw in the world today. And that might have forced him actually into an American camp, but not entirely in an American camp. He would have drawn lines, and Guantanamo would certainly have been one. He would have loved the internet. (laughs) He would have, yeah. He would have loved tweeting and sending off little ephemeral messages, and he would have loved radio. Actually, he worked in radio, of course. But I think in the 50s and 60s, if only he'd lived, he would have seriously flourished as a commentator. He would have probably got grumpy as he got older, and he probably would have gone a bit more right-wing as he got older. But this is a man who writes a wonderful essay about English culture based on dirty postcards. So I think we can be absolutely certain that he would have loved the small range, the small messages of our modern social media. His essays are absolutely magnificent. It's very hard to say which are better, his essays or his books. Well, I would say his essays are the things that really drew me to him. I think his novels are not great. I don't think he really is a novelist. I think he's using novels to express experience and politics. But his essays are something else. I mean, the essay is the great Republican art form. It's a great instrument for attacking and defending. And that's where Orwell's really at his best. So I think you're nudging me to say the essays are his finest work, and I think they are. He's an artist of words, and he's also an artist in terms of how he paints the political spectrum and the contradictions and the complexities Mm. that are embedded in that. Mm. That truly is his legacy. Yes, it is. His ability to explain complicated human affairs in a simple and straightforward way without losing the complexity. And you've got to be one hell of a writer to do that. And I think, as I've said to you before, I think this is the ace journalism in him. He really wants to get this across. It's like he's writing for you. Now, Robert, George Orwell wasn't particularly fond of the royal family, or at least he didn't revere them like most English people did at that time. But he had a particular grow for Winston Churchill. Well, he showed absolutely no interest in anything royal or establishment, for that matter. He wasn't even interested in political parties, particularly, although he was a Labour man. So, yeah, royal family, I don't know if he's for them or against them. He just completely blanks them. As for Churchill, he doesn't say much. He reviews Churchill's war volumes at the end of the war, and he reviews them with admiration. Of course, they are on different sides politically, And Churchill is an imperialist and Orwell isn't. But I think Orwell understood the situation the British were in in 1940. He understood.
understood that their army had been defeated in France. He understood that the Air Force was being bullied by a much larger and superior one. And he knew how near we were to actually being defeated and invaded. And Churchill, of course, steps in just at the moment that Orwell realises that this is the time he, too, has got to commit to his country. So, yeah, they have a kind of private admiration. Not that Churchill would have known Orwell. I very much doubt that. But Orwell certainly knew and respected him. And 1984 was written while he was really dying, effectively. Do you think that he was ever reconciled to dying? Do you think he actually thought he would die so young? I mean, he was diagnosed with TB in 1938 by his brother-in-law, Lawrence O'Shaughnessy. So he knows from 38 that he's going to have a short life. And at the end, the last two years, when he's writing 1984, he certainly knows he's had it. Although he tries everything. God knows he tries everything. But it's to no avail. And some people have argued that that gathering death infects the book and darkens it and maybe even characterises it, that it's a deeply pessimistic novel, and of course it is in one way. And the anger, the, the anger that there is there in it as well. Yes, the anger at torture and hurt that political systems can inflict. But I think also that it's not just a piece of pessimistic, deeply pessimistic science fiction. I think it's also, again, Sue, a book about England. And I think he's basically just saying, if you ever think England can do without her liberties and her language and her intimate private life, just look at this society that I've portrayed. <laughs>